Welcome to Inspiring Women with Lori McGraw. I am your host, Lori McGraw. I have spent the past 30 years in leadership, and over the years, I've come to learn one thing. Women need women, and not just any women, but inspiring women. Tune in every week to hear from women at the pinnacle of their careers and from others who are just starting out. Episodes can be found at inspiringwomen.show or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening, and I hope you will be inspired. This is Inspiring Women, and I am Lori McGraw. In today's world of big data and the new relaunch of the Cancer Moonshot, I am very excited this morning to be speaking with Dr. Amy Abernethy. She is today the president of Verily's Clinical Studies Platform. She oversees the product vision and the related clinical research portfolio. Now, before Verily, Dr. Abernethy is a physician. She is a hematologist and oncologist and palliative medicine specialist. She is also a researcher and an author having over 500 publications to her name. An absolute expert, Dr. Abernethy is also a public servant. Prior to Verily, she was the Principal Deputy Commissioner at the FDA, as well as the Acting CIO. Um, prior to that, she was the Executive Medical Leader of Flatiron Health, an oncology-based EHR company that was later sold to Roche. And for many years, she was a practicing physician and teacher at Duke. And Dr. Abernethy, I'm so excited to be speaking with you this morning. It's such a delight to be here with you today. Thank you. Well, great. Well, let's let's get started. So I always start inspiring women with a little bit of um, like, what are you doing today? So day to day at Verily, you've been there almost a year. What does your day to day job look like, Amy? Oh, wow. Interesting place to start. So my day to day job at Verily is about as varied as you can imagine. Um, so as the president of clinical studies platform, not only am um, I on a day-to-day basis, working with teams to imagine what does an evidence generation platform of the future look like and how are we going to build it? But I am also uh, very much uh, on the sales side, thinking about how do we talk to life sciences companies that might leverage our platform. I work on the health policy side, thinking about how do we talk about evidence generation in Washington And then I am on the day-to-day management side, looking at everything from managing a P&L to managing an organization with over 400 people. So um, I would say it's busy, but that's what makes it fun. Well, I'm excited to talk to you about sort of big data and the opportunities that we have in healthcare to really solve some of these significant problems, particularly in the cancer space, but obviously so many different areas of healthcare. But before we go into that, I want to, you know, you have, I think everyone knows Dr. Amy Abernathy, but if you wouldn't mind just a little bit of the bio sketch from, you know, you started as a clinician, moved to academia, to an HIT leader, to then government and um, now back to leading um, a very significant part of the Alphabet um, uh, portfolio. So can you just give us a little bit of the personal journey of how you got here? Sure. Um, You know, Laurie, I think probably the best place to start is my why. Um, I am an oncologist by background, as you mentioned. I took care of patients at Duke with melanoma. And in particular, I was leading the 
medical oncology clinic for melanoma. And then my patients were mostly young people, maybe 30, 40 years old with metastatic melanoma, um, often with problems like brain metastases. And so many of my patients, um, actually most, were going to pass away in something less than five years. So young people with a pretty critical illness. Um, and what was hard was that the person sitting in front of me was trying to make really tough choices in life. And meanwhile, on both sides of the wall, uh, both sides of my clinic were laboratories where we were studying new diagnostics for melanoma, new vaccines for melanoma, new drugs for melanoma. And the reality was that the time that it would take for us to go from promising medical interventions to the person sitting in front of me was way longer than that person um, had to live. And that's really been my why or my motivating factor for as long as I can remember is how do we speed up the process of confidently knowing how a medical product is going to improve the care of this particular person and whether or not we should try and get it in the hands of doctors and patients as quickly as possible. So at Duke, I not only took care of patients in the melanoma clinic, but I led an organization called the Center for Learning Healthcare. And we were thinking about what are the best of the data and Silicon Valley technologies that were on offer and how could we leverage them to bridge clinical care and research to get more evidence for, for patients faster. But what I could see is, although we were a really efficient and frankly, pretty well-funded research organization that were cranking out publications, I think you mentioned we had over 500 publications, it was clear to me that things topped out in academia with respect to access to capital and access to engineering and the ability to bring different kinds of talent together. And so in 2014, I made an unexpected leap to the health tech industry, not because I didn't like my job at Duke. I loved my job at Duke. And I, I really, in particular, enjoyed all the fellows and, and researchers that I got to work with, as well as the patients. But I made that leap because I thought, what if I could press on this problem from the side of venture capital in Silicon Valley. And so that's what took me to Flatiron Health, where I was chief medical and chief scientific officer. Well, Flatiron, we really demonstrated what was possible with respect to taking data from unexpected sources like the electronic health record and leveraging it to understand what works for whom and when and speeding up that process. But what I could see when I was at Flatiron was that one of the rate limiting factors was what was possible with respect to credible information for regulators like the FDA? And how could FDA essentially put up the guideposts that say, here's what good looks like in the eyes of regulators. So as a health tech company, we knew where to aim. So in 2019, February 2019, I went from Flatiron Health now to a totally different profession and became a principal deputy commissioner of the FDA. And while at FDA, I, you know, very publicly in the news said my three things to work on were patient centricity, real world data, and precision medicine. And when I got to FDA, I realized, wait a second, if we were going to move forward on speeding up evidence generation, uh, the FDA had to be technically prepared for that to happen. And so I took over the role of CIO to really move forward the vision at FDA of how to leverage data and technology differently. Well, I was at FDA during the pandemic. And... Um, 
really what a um, important and uh, frankly awe-inspiring job um, in public service. If anybody's ever ever has a chance to do public service, I I really highly recommend it. But what I could see at FDA was that our discovery engines, like the ability to discover and advance the mRNA vaccines, they were moving really fast. And our regulatory apparatus, we were able to scale it. But what was circa 1995 was how we conduct clinical trials. So going back to the same problem in the melanoma clinic. And so I left FDA in April of 20. 21 to really work on this critical issue of, again, how do we accelerate the process of evidence generation? And so I did really detailed due diligence of all the different ways I could solve that problem and ultimately came to Verily, where I felt like we had the vision and capabilities and resources and, 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 and frankly, talent and know-how to continue to make progress against that critical problem. Well, I think that's such a what an incredible background to solve these incredibly complex problems. You know, I think, you know, in the area of cancer in particular, so many people are touched by that. I myself, my father um, is someone who died of melanoma. So just appreciating how very personal this work is, your why um, that you talked about, and also how complex it is to solve these very, very difficult problems. I appreciate all this background that you are bringing to this to this um, effort. So thank you for that. Um, but let's talk about big data. Why is it so complex? Now, in previous discussions that you've had, you've also talked about a couple different parts to the equation that you think are needed to solve these large problems, whether it's professional societies, technology, like how you transform the underpinning technology at the FDA, as well as clinical research. Do you still think of it as a three-part problem to solve big, big data? What are your thoughts now? Um, yeah, you know, I might even see it as, as even more than three these days. Uh, but the if, if I come back up for a second, um, I remember in 2010, 2012, as we were talking about big data, at the time, big data meant voluminous data, right? Like it was the um, set of data that comes off of our machines as we're doing um, deep biology and um, these are omics data like genomics and transcriptome, etc. And yes, indeed, I think big data from that perspective is voluminous and it's about data storage, data management, data processing. But meanwhile, you know, as this story has progressed, what we've realized is a big part of the big data story is actually clinical data, health data. And it turns out it has very different features than those um, large instrumentation data sets um, that we get in the omics space. These data sets um, are rooted in clinical care and so come with all of the complexities of clinical care. Um, I always say data sets with warts and all, because you know, now we're talking about information that is generated as a byproduct of care. So the information, for example, that sits in the electronic health record that is not being intentionally collected for the purpose of conducting research. Right. Oftentimes has you know, problems like cut and paste errors and problems like missing data or 
um, what I call data conflicts. Um, you know, at Duke, we had 11 source systems for gender, and it might say, um, Amy is female eight out of 11 times. So what do you sort of do with that in the end? And so these kinds of data sets become really, really important if we think about evidence generation and understanding how medical products perform. And we have to deal with these like massive issues in data quality. Therefore, you know, your point around the professional societies, getting clinicians and researchers together, regulators, health tech, um, ultimately being able to get to a place where we can make sense of these data sets and also ensure that they perform for us in the way that we expect, we actually have to have all of those voices at the table, both saying, here's what you can trust and here's what you can't trust. Here's how we solve for it and fix it. And then also what does good analysis look like and, and, and good interpretation. And so all of that requires then not only the voices at the table, but learning how to talk to each other in ways that we just didn't have to do even five years ago, um, let alone before that. Well, the, the volume of data and dirty data, you know, that is out there, whether it's missing or just the quality is incomplete, has gaps um, or, it, or or errors um, is certainly the, the issue of today's time. But if we talk about big tech companies, there's been many instances where Google or Alphabet or Microsoft or now Amazon have been really working to revolutionize, disrupt, solve healthcare finally but haven't really met the mark. And so now you are at Verily. Um, what is different this time? Do you, and you talked about your team um, as being someone that, you know, a group of professionals that you feel very confident in. What's different? Can these problems be solved by big tech companies when the history doesn't suggest um, that they have been able to really make a dent yet? That's so interesting. Um, you know, so some of it is team. Um, and basically team developing the lingua franca and learning how to how to work together. So I think one of the things that's different this time is it isn't tech trying to solve healthcare problems or healthcare trying to solve problems and direct tech about what to do, but us acknowledging that the way to find the solution forward is to have equal voices at, at the table representing um, engineering, and science and medicine and product leadership and business um, and healthcare delivery and that they all have to talk to each other with equal voices and equal respect and so i think that's one of the things that's critical about solving this problem um, you know another thing that i think is different now than has been um, in, in the past is we do have um, essentially better tooling um, that better tooling exists on the software development side, it exists on the data set development side, as well as on the uh, analytics side, including um, more sophisticated analyses like AI and ML. Um, but it also is that we're getting better about understanding how to apply that tooling, um, including uh, moving beyond the naivete that artificial intelligence is going to fix everything, but instead recognizing that we not only have to apply the tooling at the right time, but we have to continuously cross-check the performance. And so I think the last thing I would say is that there is an increasing understanding of the criticality of performance evaluation of our solutions to, for example, solve problems in healthcare delivery or evidence generation, and also the ability of third-party adjudicators like the regulators to cross-check and say, yes, 
that makes sense to me and this is what good looks like. And so I think all of those things are moving forward. And I at least am very, you know, hopeful. Uh, well, I'll start to say bullish, but I think that that's actually probably too far forward. I, I, I would say hopeful that we've got the capabilities needed to get there and now we have to do this work well. Well, I also think that there were some, you know, early, you know, the the move fast and break things, which was never something that you said, um, but was, you know, certainly is, I, you know, the naivete that you talk about that seemed to be sort of like, you know, aligned with just, you know, healthcare is complex. And so all the different angles that you're talking about in terms of who you have to work with, as well as, you know, needing the technical firepower that you certainly have at Verily to solve the nuance with these complex problems. I'm hopeful. Uh, I, I will just say these problems are still here. Um, and I would like to be optimistic about them. Uh, I know that you are in evidence-based medicine, not just focused on cancer, even though you spent um, a large part of your career focused there. So, so just a bit more on Verily, um, you know, are you optimistic? And, and maybe if we could talk about the cancer moonshot. So Biden's, you know, push again for cutting uh, cancer deaths by 50% in the next 25 years. Are you optimistic that we'll be able to achieve goals like that? We'll barely be helping in that effort. Um, are there other things that we might look forward to in the coming years? So um, just for, you know, kind of full disclosure, Verily has not put up right hand right this second to say we will be helping in that effort. Although, man, oh man, would I be delighted to be a part of that conversation and moving forward. Um, we're still watching to figure out what parts of the conversation are, are going to need us most. But here's why I am um, very uh, hopeful. As I mentioned, you know, what I could see when I was at FDA is that our discovery engines really are ticking along amazingly well. And so part of solving the cancer conundrum is to continue our full court press with understanding biology. And one of the things that's amazing about that work is that what we learn in cancer has incredible flow on effects across all of healthcare, whether that is you know, now into the inflammatory and rheumatology space, or even to um, better uh, versions of healthcare delivery. And so that focus on biology, which I anticipate will continue as a part of Moonshot, I think is going to be important. But then the place where, you know, I, I, I have really focused our arrows at, at Verily is, again, on this space of evidence generation. So translating our better understanding biology into an understanding of when a medical product is gonna be adequately safe and effective for the person with cancer. And at Verily, we're, we're really focused on a number of things. Um, first of all, uh, one of the things that cancer has taught us is as we get more and more personalized precision interventions, the need to essentially understand how a precision or personalized intervention works for the individual and then understand performance of those interventions across time, often essentially longitudinal evaluation to continue to document efficacy and also um, understand safety. And so we're really working at Verily on building the longitudinal data sets and capabilities needed to be able to not only evaluate personalized and precision health interventions, but then continue to hone how we map what person needs what type of interventions more and more um, uh, targeted ways um, into the future. And so I think that's going to be a critical part of 
this Moonshot 2.0 um, is really making sure that our understanding of biology and then translates into personalization in cancer care and that that also transfers over to other parts of the healthcare delivery system. Well, like I said, these are incredibly complex problems and I am rooting for you to, um, you know, make big dents in solving them um, as they will be impactful for so, so many. A couple more questions, Amy, if I could just turn the conversation back to you and as the professional and leader um, that you are, I've heard you talk in the past about mentoring and coaches and things that have been important to you. And you've talked about having an actionable strategic mentoring plan as something that was important to you in your career journey. Is that still important to you even today as the leader that you are today? Oh, wow. I can't believe you remember that. Yes, yes, yes. Um, sort of short story, uh, in probably by 2005 or so, I was an assistant professor at Duke and really trying to figure out, you know, how was I going to do this work, which was fairly avant-garde at the time, and um, went to my division chief who was a terrific person, but also felt equally as challenged by uh, how to guide me um, in doing the work that we've just outlined today. And so I went back to my house fairly irritated um, and it was like, I sat my, I rumped myself down, sat on the couch and wrote a personal SWOT analysis. So strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, and then decided, okay, if I've got my SWOT analysis, I need a strategic plan to address it and ultimately wrote a personal strategic mentoring plan. And what I did was I wrote down all of the people that I thought would be helpful for my career, actually really kind of by capability or thing that I thought that I could learn from them. And then how I might get myself introduced to that person and what I could bring to the relationship versus, as well as what I was hoping to get out of the relationship. Six different individuals for, with everything from uh, capabilities in running a cancer center and a health system to probably one of the most meaningful, which was how to be a female leader um, without um, being characterized by the B word. You know, I went to all of these people and they taught me amazing things. Um, to this day, uh, five of six of them um, uh, continue to be important mentors and colleagues in my life. And um, the female leader, she passed away and I still tell her story all the time. And now I have a new set um, of mentors because as we grow in our careers, we do continue to need to grow with our mentors and advisors. And I also um, talk to many of my mentees because part of you know, saying thank you to the people who helped me along was, is also to, to bring forward the next generation. And so I think it is incredibly important, um, but we also need to come at it with you know, thought and care because the people who are mentors in our lives often are busy people. And so being able to really leverage that time wisely was something I learned early on. That is just incredible. First, that you were, you know, had such a detailed SWOT analysis and turned it into an actionable plan. And that still, that this is something that you have today in terms of as you think about what um, you're doing. As we close out, Amy, on inspiring women, just, uh, you know, I'd love to just get your thoughts and reflections as we are coming, hopefully, out of this two years of being in a pandemic. So many people have gone through great reevaluations of what they're doing, what's most important to them. Just as you think about your own professional career journey, where you are as a leader, are there any reflections um, that you have realized over these two years that you're thinking differently, perhaps, than you might have been had not been for the pandemic? Hmm. 
Wow, so important final question. Um, you know, I think that the pandemic for me surfaced a lot of elements that were truly in my soul, but didn't necessarily um, always have the level of clarity around them that I feel like I have now. So one is really be clear about your why. It makes it so much easier to say I'm doing that and not that. And it's as often that the things you're not gonna do are as important as the things you are gonna do. And so I would say clarity about your why. The second thing I would say is that um, as the pandemic has reminded me over and over again, hard things are hard, but the hard things that line up with your why are definitely worth doing. And so you just have to keep at it. Um, the third thing I would say is that, um, you know, the pandemic has reminded me that solving hard problems requires coming at these problems from many different angles. You sort of see that show up in my career. Uh, you know, I kind of look like, a mutt when you, when you look at all the different ways that I've been trying to solve the same problem. But um, it really is because of the fact that often you need many different lenses to solve hard problems. And then the last thing I would say uh, is, man, oh man, have fun doing it. Um, probably the thing that I've added to my vernacular more so in the pandemic than any other time is this is going to be fun. Um, maybe I'm trying to remind myself, but I think it's actually, I also trying to remind myself and other people around me that uh, we should have a good time. We should smile, sing karaoke, um, you know, write funny notes um, while we're doing hard work that sometimes requires us to dig in at 10 o'clock on a Sunday night because we know we're doing the right thing. Well, this has been a lot of fun talking to you today, Amy. I really appreciate it. I don't think you look anything like a mutt in terms of your career journey. <laughs> and that is just fantastic advice to close out, close out on. This has been an excellent, inspiring women conversation. We've been speaking with Dr. Amy Abernathy. Amy, thank you so much. Thank you, Laurie. It's been terrific and fun. <laughs> this has been an episode of Inspiring Women with Laurie McGraw please subscribe, rate, and review. We are produced by Kate Cruz at Executive Podcast Solutions. More episodes can be found on inspiringwomen.show. I am Lori McGraw, and thank you for listening.